Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Genetics Podcast. I'm really excited to be here today with Professor Claire Turnbull, who's a professor of translational cancer genetics at the Institute for Cancer Research and an NHS consultant in clinical cancer genetics at the Royal Marsden NHS Foundation Trust. Professor Turnbull also works as a consultant in public health medicine for Public Health England. We're going to talk about polygenic risk scores today in a lot of detail and an amazing paper that Claire recently, uh, with a number of colleagues, published looking at implementation of polygenic scores and running a number of simulations in the healthcare system rather than in, uh, in theory. So Claire, thank you, and I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Good afternoon. Nice to join you. I would love to maybe just start with how you got into this line of work. What got you interested in cancer genomics in particular and uh, led you down this path? For sure. So I am a clinical geneticist. So I have a medical training and in clinical genetics, we see all kinds of different patients and families where the basis of their disease or familial pattern of disease looks to have a genetic basis. So many of my colleagues see pregnant women or children with learning disabilities, families with cardiovascular disease. I myself have specialized in patients and families who have a cancer presentation that suggests an inherited basis. So those are the patients I see in clinic. And then in terms of my research work, I have a number of studies where we collect up samples from patients with cancer or in particular patients where there's a familial pattern of cancer. And historically, over the last 15 or so years, conducted a number of studies looking to find genes and genetic variants implicated in causing familial cancer. Sort of 10 or 15 years ago, we published on genes associated with ovarian cancer, for example, RAD51C, RAD51D. But actually, over again, over the last sort of 15 or so years, we've done a number of genome-wide association studies. So that's looking for these common variants associated with cancer. And in particular, I've been involved in genome-wide association studies of breast cancer and testicular cancer. Those are two particular cancers I've focused on. And the question has always been, can we take these common variants we found, group them together in what we call polygenic risk scores, and apply these to predict the likelihood of developing these types of cancer ahead of time and use those risks meaningfully to manage people at particularly high risk differently. So that's sort of where I've come to this point, both asking these types of questions in clinic, but asking these types of questions in research. And so where we sit today, how well are polygenic risk scores predicting disease? And maybe we can talk about breast cancer in particular, where you've done a lot of work. Are they silver bullet? Are they explaining a big fraction? What are you finding? So that's a very good question. So the first genome-wide association study for breast cancer was published in 2007. And like all of genomics, the discoveries are really predicated on the technology becoming available. So in the early 2000s, our understanding of the genome allowed us to, I say us, allowed for the creation of what's called SNP arrays. So these were platforms containing, in the early days, 100,000, the more recent ones contain millions of common variants. And these common variants represent the common variation across the genome. So by, it's called a sentinel SNP. So you have these tag SNPs, sentinel SNPs, represent blocks of the genome that are common 
across the population. So having identified historically these high penetrance genes in which rare mutations cause clusters of familial risk, so BRCA1, BRCA2, again, in the early 2000s, it became apparent that quite plausibly, a lot of the variation, the genetic variation we see might be due to common variants. And it was presented as the common disease, common variant hypothesis that, and again, in some of the early presentations of these, the schematics, it was sort of presented that maybe there were 12 or 15 common variants and Jane might have three of the risk variants for breast cancer and Mary might have seven risk variants and Beth might have 12 of them. And that, that in some way that, that that would be how common variation was distributed and we'd have a variable dose. So we then have these SNP arrays, the technology becomes available where we can actually start addressing these questions and people within the field conducted these genome-wide association studies. So looking across all, you know, the, the so, you know, a few hundred thousand common variants and looking in a large group of cases, large group of breast cancer cases and a large group of controls and looking for common variants that were more common in the cases. So they would then be the associated ones. And what became apparent quite early on was that actually the effect sizes of, of the top hits that came out in these first GWAS were quite modest. And so I remember in breast cancer 2007, the relative risk was 1.26 for the top SNP. And we were kind of going, oh, that's quite, quite a modest effect size. And actually then afterwards, th those were the so-called low-hanging fruit. Right. Um, it only got worse then, from there. It only got worse, yeah. yes. So then the subsequent effect sizes are sort of, and ones that are published now are down in the sort of relative risk of 1.03, 1.02. So yes, so in those early GWAS, you got the low hanging fruit, and then there were subsequent larger and larger studies that effectively were finding variants of smaller and smaller effect size, and also rarer and rarer. So your, your greater power allowed you to drill deeper, but Ultimately, what has become apparent is that Mother Nature is much more complex than we'd originally anticipated. And it's not 12 or 15 common variants that are accounting for that missing heritability. It's more like hundreds or thousands. Right. And our ability to identify them will be predicated on how large studies we can conduct. But that also will be a sort of diminishing tail. So in breast cancer, our current polygenic risk scores are based on around about 300 common variants. But even if you went up to genome-wide association studies, twice the size of everything that we've done so far, you'd only get a modest amount more prediction. And even if you had an infinitely large genome-wide association study that captured all of the common variants of even the most minuscule effect size, it would still only provide a certain amount of prediction. And that is because, firstly, diseases are only have a certain amount of heritability. And secondly, only a proportion of that heritability lies in common variants. So breast cancer, for example, and this then comes from looking at twin studies. And those are very, you know, sort of classic genetic epidemiology that you'd compare your monozygotic twins and your dizygotic twins and you compare the level of concordance, and that's an age-old way of quantifying how heritable a condition is. 
So breast cancer is 31, has 31% heritability. So 69% of what is determining whether or not a woman develops breast cancer is not direct genetic effects. It's the accrued exposure to different environmental influences over age. So your heritability is only that 31% and less than half of that lies in common variants. And that, that again is sort of down to mother nature being much more tricksy and complicated. So even if we had absolutely infinitely large genome-wide association studies, we'd only probably get to about 40% of that heritability. So that's maybe about sort of 13, 14% of the etiological influences of breast cancer. So ultimately, if, if that's all you can ever get with your polygenic risk score, and we're, we're at half of that at the moment, it's not going to give you that right. strong a prediction of whether or not the woman is going to develop breast cancer. And breast cancer is one of the best studied diseases because it's common and we've been pretty good at collecting samples. And how much of that other 60, 70 percent are we modeling right now in screening programs in healthcare systems like the NHS? So basically, we use age. Age is a pretty good proxy for your exposure to all of those lifetime right environmental factors, but it doesn't obviously account in any way for the nuance of them. Most of them we don't understand very well. So we know breast cancer is one where we know that hormonal factors have an influence. So, you know, number of children, whether you breastfed them, age of menopause, HRT. We know that BMI has an influence. That's probably a bit more complicated. It may be to do with periods of weight gain and weight loss. I mean, we know broadly that diet, obesity, microbiomes, all of these are part of that lifelong exposure to different environmental factors. But our ability to actually meaningfully capture and quantify that is quite limited because, again, these are all just exposures that are having complex effects in space and time and probably also interacting with genetic effects, but with such complexity Right. Our ability to unpick that and then usefully use it for prediction is quite limited. So when you look at a, a screening program, if we take polygenic scoring out for a second, maybe you can talk about some of the some of the nuances of evaluating one of these kind of programs. Because I think there's the there's the obvious question of are we finding new cases by adding something else in that like a polygenic risk score that we didn't have before. But there's also the flip side of are we identifying false positives that we now need to deal with. Um, we've told somebody they might have cancer risk and they actually don't. Talk a little bit about some of the obvious and not so obvious nuances of evaluating these kind of programs. Um, that's an excellent question because actually polygenic risk score or any type of prediction is only as good as the useful thing you can offer to those people at high risk. And so largely we would think about offering high risk individuals screening in the context of improving outcomes in cancer. So that'd be we, something like a mammogram or a yeah, a program of mammography. People who are very high risk, we can offer risk reducing surgery. And that's another whole area, the sort of pros and cons of doing that and potential side effects and harms versus benefits. Risk reducing oophorectomy, removal of the fallopian tubes and ovaries we do offer to women with BRCA1-2 mutations. And if a woman's at very high risk, that is a useful intervention. Chemo prevention is also the sort of holy grail. Can you give people a drug that reduces their risk of cancer? But they have to be at 
very high risk and that has to be a drug with a very favorable side effect profile for right. that trade-off to be acceptable in giving a drug to someone who is well. So that's our sort of our offerings, a screening, surgery and chemo prophylaxis. Surgery is the one that's sort of the, the, the road most tested. Uh, sorry, screening is the most tested. And we sort of think of screening as, as being not having any harms. And I think that's one that's sort of something which one needs to be mindful of. And thinking of screening that an area of screening is around thinking about harms is thinking of the natural history of the cancer. If we don't understand the natural history of the cancer very well, there is a potential that our screening detects tumours that would never have come to medical attention in the lifetime of that patient. Because your screening is a snapshot, it's finding something today, and that actually then a number of cancers, we're not very good at discerning aggressive cancers from very, very slow growing ones. So there's this farmyard analogy where you talk about snails, tortoises, rabbits and birds and your screening program will be effective if it detects rabbits and rabbits is the term for cancers that are progressing sufficiently fast that if you detect them pre-symptomatically by screening you have changed the outcome yeah. and if you waited for them to present symptomatically by that time, they will already have metastasized. So those are the ones where your screening makes a difference. You've averted a death. So a cancer program that detects rabbits, is um, a screening program, is an effective screening program. Birds is, are then the tumor types that are so aggressive that they've already metastasized if you pick them up on screening. Right. So those ones, you haven't made any difference. Tortoises are going very, very slowly. So they will eventually reach the farmyard fence, yeah. but actually they're fine to pick up symptomatically. If you pick them up symptomatically, they're still treatable. Right. And then snails are going so slowly that they were never going to reach right. the farmyard fence within the lifetime of that patient. These are so slow growing. And classically, prostate cancer, thyroid cancer, and to an extent breast cancer, there are a significant number. If you oh. start screening people you will find a sizable number of tumours that that patient would have happily died with and not of. Wow. And the problem is, once you find them, it is medical instinct, it is patient right. instinct to want them treated. With prostate cancer, they try and do some watch and wait, but actually, ultimately, if there's any change, the clinicians and patients both sort of feel happier yeah. intervening. And so classically in prostate cancer, a lot of men end up having prostatectomies for prostate cancers that never would have come to medical attention. And actually the data from the prostate screening trials suggests that between 40 and 50% of the prostate cancers you find if you start doing PSA testing are overdiagnoses, that these are prostate cancers that the man happily would have died with and not knowing about. So overdiagnosis is a significant problem of screening. And you have to then weigh up whether you're doing enough good in finding cancers where you're changing the outcome, those rabbits versus the snails, the tumours you're detecting where effectively you're doing harm. You're taking a well man, you're making him into a cancer patient and potentially, particularly with prostate cancer and prostatectomy, it has significant 
side effects of incontinence, impotence and so forth, which that that man never need to have suffered. And so in your recent work, uh, this is June 2023 in, in The Lancet, you looked at historical registry, cancer registry data in the UK, right, and, and applied polygenic scores in eight different cancer types. What did you find there in terms of the balance between false positives and false negatives? I think it was, you probably weren't able to dive into whether these were snails or or rabbits, but looking at it at a higher level, were you able to, what conclusions were you able to draw about the state of polygenic scores at this stage where they are today? And then maybe we can talk about whether or not there's opportunities to improve. So I think what we want to do was try and take as broad a possible an overview of the clinical utility. And uh, the reason we undertook the analysis was I often found it quite frustrating that papers on polygenic scores would focus on the number of people who would shift between one screening category or not, or the number of cancers you detect. And actually what I wanted to do was try and get a sense of if you undertook screening using polygenic risk scores, what number of deaths would you avert? What number of people would you confer survival right. who otherwise would have died? Yeah. Sign up for more screening. Yeah. Well, so I mean, for example, in, in the UK we have different breast screening categories around some sort of fairly arbitrary thresholds, which mean nothing to Mother Nature, but we have population level risk, we have intermediate level risk, and we have high risk. And a lot of this has come from the genetics clinic around family history, and then the high risk is around the bracket carriers. And so a lot of people have used those fairly arbitrary thresholds to say, okay, if we did polygenic risk scoring, we could shift the risk category for this proportion of people. But actually, the data lining up who has what screening and what the impact on survival are not well established. So shifting people between risk categories, which in themselves are fairly arbitrary, is not that helpful an outcome. So we chose to undertake these analyses using UK instance data and also using screening data and then using routes to detection data. So we have data that's age-specific and stage-specific according to whether people's cancer presented via different routes of detection. So we've got people presented, the routine routes are people presenting to their GP, people presenting via the two-week wait program or people presenting via emergency routes and then you have screening and screening typically has a more favorable survival profile so we then modeled if we offered prs stratified screening to particular groups of people how many people would be detected on screening how that would influence their stage of presentation and then how therefore that would influence their 10-year survival and then we could look across, so we could say, and so we looked at three different scenarios where currently we do not offer screening and said, okay, there's a big impetus at the moment to improve part of the NHS long-term plan. They want to improve early detection by cancer. They'll be looking at you know, new possibilities for screening. And it's quite attractive to the policymakers rather than screening the whole of that age group. So take women aged 40 to 49, rather than screening the whole of that age group, what would happen if we offered screening to the polygenic risk score to find top 20%? That's a sort of plausible policy strategy. It would be less resource intensive than offering it to the whole age group. So we looked and said, okay, if we take 100 women who currently 
would present in the absence of screening, what proportion would be in the screened group, what proportion of cancers would be picked up in that group, and how many lives would you save? So if you offered breast screening to the top 20% of polygenic PRS-defined women aged 40 to 49, to start with, 63% of women who go on to develop breast cancer would have been in the so-called low-risk group. Right. So your top 20% of risk would include 37% of the breast cancers. That's the sort of enrichment you're getting. So you're getting some yeah. bang for buck, but 63% of the cancers arise in those that are in, in the low-risk yeah. group. Yeah. You then, in your 37% of women of the cancers arising, you miss a proportion because mammography is imperfect. Yep. You then, the vast majority of the women, it doesn't change their outcome if you offer them screening, that either they were going to survive, the vast majority were going to survive, so it's sort of around about 85%, and then a proportion who were going to die from their breast cancer within 10 years, most of them you haven't changed that by screening again, so they are going to be the birds. Hmm. The majority of women are the tortoises, that it was you, you haven't changed the outcome by screening. And then it's about 1.5% of that age group you would avert a death in. Right. That was our sort of take home. We felt that was a kind of useful take home metric. And then we compared it to the sort of useful question saying, if you've got that resource of screening, you've got you've got a sort of chunk of mammograms you can use, you could give it to the top, those in the top 20% of PRS defined risk, or potentially you could just give that resource to the oldest 20%, so roughly right. start screening age 48 rather than 50. So you'd avert 102 deaths a year across the country if you gave it to the PRS-defined group versus 80 if you just gave it to the oldest, the oldest 20%. 20%. Yeah. And that's based on a ton of very favourable assumptions as well. So the difference between that 102 and that 80 is based on assuming everyone takes up polygenic risk stratification, right. everyone takes up screening, that we have no interval cancers, that everyone is of Western European ancestry and so forth. So it's the most sort of favourable presentation right. of the data. And actually what you would get in the real world, and we know that not everyone will take everything up, and then diversity of ancestry would um, diminish the prediction of the polygenic risk score. You'd sort of variously get diminution of those numbers and of the difference between those numbers what would need to be different whether it's yeah, is it different heritability of the disease different performance of the scores to dramatically change this is there is there a silver lining here where you could say actually if we're able to do a b and c then this is a this is a tool we should look at in the healthcare system yes i come as a clinical geneticist and we like to find individuals who are at very high risk of disease because we can then offer them extreme interventions like surgical removal or aggressive screening with MRI and so forth. So if you had a polygenic risk score where 80% of your disease arise in that top 20% of risk, then you can start doing right. something very intensive to that group and something very aggressive because you've defined a group nearly all of your disease are going to arise in this group. 
and de facto that group are then at very high risk. So if you had a polygenic risk score, which performed to that level of resolution, that would be very useful. Yeah. However, the polygenic risk scores for common complex diseases do not offer anything resembling that level of prediction because A, these diseases have quite modest heritability and B, only a proportion that heritability resides in common variants and C, the genome-wide association studies we've had even using the totality of the samples we can lay our hands on can only account for a proportion of that. So ultimately, for common complex diseases, the ones which have a large burden of morbidity, mortality and healthcare usage, these are ultimately diseases where the polygenic risk scores are only going to provide quite limited level of prediction. That's inherent. These are diseases of older age, which only have modest heritability. There are some other conditions. Type 1 diabetes, actually, is the polygenic is much more heritable and the PRS are getting up there. But that's relatively rare. So the problem is your absolute likelihood of developing type 1 diabetes in the population is relatively low. So even if your PRS is much more predictive. You still have a lot of false positives. Your predictive value is working against a very low absolute risk. Yeah. I know you didn't address this. I, I don't, at least I think you didn't address this directly in the paper because it was a polygenic score of focus. Where do some of the monogenic or near monogenic variants fit into this picture? Because something like BRCA1 or 2 is is also different. It's not an 80-20. It's more like a 1%, 3% or, or something like that. Where, do the, where does that fit into this uh, paradigm? So yeah, so that's, as you say, I think useful to consider that quite separately. And that's what we've done in clinical genetics is really take patients and families who walk through the front door with a disease or a family history and used testing for single genes to try and best inform their management. And if you take ovarian cancer, 15 to 20% of them have a BRCA1-2 mutation. All comers with breast cancer, it's about 3%, a little bit higher if you include some other genes. So finding these genes in sometimes can help define the cancer management of your patient. Of course, PARP inhibitors leveraging our knowledge of homologous recombination repair, but also then predicting future disease. So again, there's nothing more tragic than a woman who has been cured of her breast cancer dying of a predictable ovarian cancer because you didn't find the BRCA1 mutation. And then, of course, cascading out to the families. So within that paradigm of people walking through the hospital front door with a problem, we can do quite a lot of good, but that's relatively small scale. In terms of then going out there to the population, the population frequency of pathogenic variants in these genes is really relatively low. And then the other caveat on that is that these pathogenic variants in monogenic disorders are functioning in a milieu of polygenic and environmental risk factors. And if you, there's some beautiful work, I know that um, Caroline Wright and her team in Exeter have been pulling together around looking at the penetrance of disease when you start finding these pathogenic variants, not in patients and families who have walked through the front door with the relevant disorder, but in the general population. 
and so when you're not ascertaining based on phenotype the penetrance is much lower and it may be that actually the interventions that we've used in um, individuals who we've ascertained because of disease may not be so relevant in the context of lower penetrance if you ascertain at population level so I think that's interesting it'll be interesting to see how that plays out there's lots of interest in population testing for BRCA, Lynch, these types of disorders. It also, of course, pertains to secondary findings. It pertains to paediatric disorders around newborn whole genome screening. So again, I, th I think this will be really quite important sort of genetic epidemiologic type analyses around the utility and again, the benefits and harms of single gene disorder testing in the general population versus starting with patients and families who have had that disorder. Yeah, and, and just to anybody who's listening to this episode for the first time, we had Caroline on a very recent previous episode, and we we touched on this topic of modification of some of the monogenic or near monogenic by polygenic scores. We, we didn't go into, into too much detail, but I think it's a really interesting point to linger on and maybe come back to in a little bit more detail that if you look in a group of people with breast cancer, you may find some of the known suspects like BRCA1 and 2. But then if you look in a broad population like the UK Biobank, you'll find these same mutations, but you're going to find cancer incidents at maybe a much lower rate than expected. And, and one of the hypotheses there is that actually the people in the breast cancer cohort may have had both the monogenic and a smattering of polygenic risk that push them over the threshold. And so we're, I think it's interesting in that these highly ascertained cohorts and the less ascertained cohorts are helping us to unpick some of the monogenic and polygenic risk and, and where they overlap. So we go back and listen to that episode if you haven't, but um, I think it's an interesting new area of research. I mean, actually, so just one of the areas in which polygenic scores are potentially very useful is giving a modified risk for your individuals in whom you right. have found, Interesting, for, yeah. for whatever reasons, a single gene pathogenic variant. And again, there's some beautiful work in Cambridge, Mark Tiskovich, Antonis Antonio, and they have a beautiful integrated model. It's CANRISC or Bodicea, where they integrate the polygenic risk with the single gene risk and then all the other non-genetic risk factors. And actually, if we're talking breast cancer, mammographic density is a really informative risk factor. So again, if someone has been found to have a single gene pathogenic variant associated with breast cancer, you can then quite usefully stratify their risk because that will be distributed around a sort of much higher right. median point. And it may be that some of these women may be at a risk where they choose not to undertake risk-reducing mastectomy. Some of them may be at much higher risk of breast cancer and would choose to have surgery earlier and so forth. So actually, when someone comes to medical attention with a pathogenic variant in one of these genes, the polygenic risk can be quite informative. And we are now testing within for women who are having a BRCA test. We do also now test for other genes like ATM and CHECK2 and PALP2, which have lower starting risks of breast cancer. So sometimes that resolution around the 
average risk we associate with pathogenic variants right. in that gene can be really useful. So I think that is an area where polygenic modification can be quite informative, but I think that's quite a different use case to using it in the general population to inform screening. Yeah, and I'm I'm interested to hear your thoughts on how maybe let's start with the UK and the NHS. As you mentioned earlier, genomics and integrating genomics in the healthcare system seems to be a pretty core part of the strategy. And one of the recommendations you make in the paper is that we need to run UK-specific cluster randomized trials that really focus on the real-world clinical impact, costs, and harms. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what those would look like, and then maybe more generally what healthcare systems, whether it's the UK or otherwise, need need to do to establish where these kind of new tests fit into the, the broader spectrum of screening tools. I, mean, I, I think what we said in the paper is, if you think the numbers on paper look compelling, and I would argue that possibly they are not, yeah. but the numbers on paper do not take into account real-world implementation. So you need to start with a, a numeric evaluation. If your numeric evaluation looks compelling, you should then do the appropriate right. trials. And those trials need to be cluster randomized in order to quantify all of the behavioral aspects of implementation of genomic testing. So I think that's true if you felt the case were compelling for polygenic risk stratified screening, that you need to undertake cluster randomized trials. And that's what the National Screening Committee do if they said so they've they've looked at age extension of screening. So they implement it in one region of the country, but not in the other. And then they compare outcomes in, in the different regions. Right. And that's the only way if you do research studies with consented research volunteers, you can get some quantification of causal impact. So if you randomize some people in your study to have an intervention, not others, within your research study, you can see differences between your research volunteers. But that doesn't tell you in the real world, if you implemented PRS stratified screening, who would take it up, who wouldn't? Right. Do the people who are told they're low risk, does their behavior change? Do they sort of believe themselves, do they not present with symptoms because they believe they're now at low risk of breast cancer or prostate cancer or whatever? Do the people who are told at high risk, do they sort of start developing different health-seeking behaviours? What are the differential uptakes and behaviours of people of different ancestries or socioeconomic groups and so forth? And you only really see, I mean, as well as, of course, the long-term outcomes, and we've talked about all the complexities in terms of outcomes of screening. You get disease-specific mortality, you get um, all-cause mortality. So a formal, robust evaluation of any new screening program, ultimately, you may start with some kind of individually consented research study with volunteers, but ultimately, you will only be able to see the long-term impact and benefits and harms of screening if you undertake that type of cluster randomized population level study. And that's why the National Screening Committee exists. It's an expert institution which has all of the know-how around the complexities of screening and can undertake these types of long-term studies. And I think there is a bit of a danger that there's a sort of excitement that genomics offers some kind of radical silver panacea, silver bullet, radical panacea, and therefore that genomic interventions 
should in some way be managed differently and don't require quite the sort of same level of, of rigorous evaluation that is standard for other types of screening. But ultimately, sort of going out into the population and doing things to the general well population that potentially can cause harms, I think we need to be very cautious that, you know, there's a long track record of screening studies that have shown sort of different tools and interventions that either are not effective or cause harm. And there's actually genomics in itself has a level of complexity in terms of, you know, either being weakly predictive or having a high level of false positive predictions because of reduced penetrance. For all those reasons, genomics is complex. Screening is complex. Juxtaposing some kind of genomic test with a screening program you've got double the complexity. So I would argue very strongly that the onus for rigorous, robust, long-term studies, which may need to be preceded by individually randomized research studies, but without those formal cluster randomized types of evaluations the the National Screening Committee conduct, that, that we potentially could end up implementing very expensive genomic screening programs, which may not only fail to do good, but have a lot of potential to do harm. One of the things I was, I was trying to run the numbers after reading the paper and I, and I may get some of these figures wrong, but I think there's about half a million deaths in the UK every year or in in recent years. And you pointed out in the paper that across the couple of cancer types you looked at, it would maybe be a hundred deaths that were saved by implementing a in each cancer type. I'm wondering, one of the unique aspects of genomics is that you can do a single test and potentially make risk predictions across every therapeutic area from type 1 diabetes to Alzheimer's to cancer. We can maybe come back to the point you made earlier about polygenic scores only as good as what you can do afterwards. Um, but maybe you can talk a little bit about whether there is a, whether there's a possible path towards starting to stack these benefits across many different diseases? Uh, or does this just compound the problem where you you just have a small effect on loads of different national screening programs and, and you don't really move the needle in any of them? I mean, that That's an absolutely excellent question. And that's often one of the motivators around genomic testing or stratification is that you can do a single test and provide predictions for a number of diseases. So both, you know, whole genome sequencing, particularly newborn whole genome sequencing or polygenic risk stratification. Ultimately, it's uh, Screening Epidemiology 101. It's Wilson Jungner back in 1968 in the World Health Organization set out some very clear criteria by which you look at the combination of a disease, a screening test and a treatment and that paradigm has to tick a number of boxes before you screen for it. And that still applies if you are going to use genomics as part of the screening or part of the risk stratification. Unless your disease ticks the boxes, then it hasn't changed just because you're thinking of weaving in genomics as being part of the screening protocol. So what are just, those boxes? So it's, you know, it's... For those it's, of us it, who haven't it, taken Epidemiology <laughs> 101... <laughs> Well, it's you have to have a, a screening test. So your, your genomics will identify someone who is at risk over their lifetime of developing the disease. And they would then go into the bucket of people where you're going to aggressively look for disease in some way. So that's where your genomics works, whether it's newborn screening or whether it's risk stratification. 
But ultimately, you're then going to look for the disease in these individuals using some test that measures or assays for disease today. So genomics is assaying for disease ever, are your elevated risk of disease ever? And then you're going to juxtapose that with some kind of test which screens for the emergence of disease. And so therefore, you have to, you know, the tick boxes here are around, do you have a good test that can assay for emergence of disease? So you need to have sufficiently good, when you dial up to get the specificity high enough that this is feasible to run in the population without excessive false positives, do you still have a good enough sensitivity? Is this an important disease? Do we know the natural history? Do we have a marker for disease that is going to be aggressive and lethal? Do we have a treatment? Do we know that starting that treatment pre-symptomatically improves the outcome compared to waiting for the disease to become symptomatic? And you need to tick all those boxes and then various other ones are around, you know, that the treatment needs to be available and around equality of access to the treatment and the screening program and harms and that your screening test needs to be cheap and acceptable and so forth. But ultimately, unless you know the natural history of the disease, you don't have excess false, so, you know, prostate cancer that, you know, you have a marker for disease that's going to be aggressive. Right. You understand the natural history and that your treatment started early makes a difference. That is screening 101. And if you don't meet those criteria, you should not be screening for that condition because you will do more harm with your right. screening than you will for waiting for those patients to present symptomatically. Yeah, this is uh, this has been a fascinating discussion. I know we're running out of time. Final question, what's next for you? What are you working on right now that you're most excited about? I do lots of things, but I really like, I think my passion is trying to get the NHS to work better. Yes. So actually, um, although I'm doing some various things in gene discovery and lots of things in bioinformatics, a lot of my work is working with the diagnostic labs around variant interpretation and trying to develop evidence protocols. So I've got a great collaboration at the moment with uh, Greg Finlay at the Crick and David Adams at the Sanger around functional assays and how we're going to quantify them and weave them into variant interpretation for the genes that we test for in the clinic. And I've got another big project around sort of improving pathways for BRCA testing in breast cancer patients, because again, we're sort of limited by the clunky mechanics of NHS pathways. Um, So actually just some sort of quite simple fixes. So again, the latter project is actually sort of, it is sort of gluing together some sort of quite basic building blocks but, you know, if we have a hotline rather than lots of appointments, yes. can can we better serve more patients? So, again, sort of quite simple questions, but ultimately in terms of sort of trying to deliver the simple things that we know work yeah. and do that better. That's one of the common criticisms of genomics, right? Why spend, we have a limited budget and should we spend it on some of this new fancy things when we could have better existing tools that we know really make a difference? And And it's situational, isn't it? But it's important to ask that question. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always, it's human nature, isn't it? We want to do something new and shiny and exciting. And we we move on from the sort of rather gritty, arduous work <laughs> right. of trying to get the things we know work, working properly. Yes. Well, I know we're, we're very much up against time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was a, a wonderful conversation. It's been lovely to speak to you, Patrick. And thanks, everybody, for listening. As always, if you'd like to recommend a guest or have any feedback, you can email us at podcast at sinogenetics.com. And we really appreciate, first and foremost, if you share this episode with a friend who you think would like it. And of course, leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thank you. And we'll see you next time.